will be all over the place in Revelation 1 through 7 this morning. So keep your Bibles, keep your phone handy. I want you to see and read the words as we work through them this morning. Matter of fact, I desire that and all of our preachers desire that, that you would follow along in your word each week. Don't take what we say uh, for, uh, uh, for the gospel. See it, read it yourself, measure what we say against the word. <clears throat> so Revelation chapter 1, I, I want you to know, and I hope you know this, that, that you are loved that, that if you've been redeemed by God's grace, that you are a royal priesthood, that you are a holy nation, that you are not a people, but you are a people. So I don't, we don't preach the word. You're not listening just like the trees listen or like anybody listens. You listen as someone special that God cares about. And my desire today is simply this, to help you to help myself even in this moment, behold God's glory in justice and mercy through giving you just a taste of what's ahead over the next 14 weeks. I want to give you today just an overview. And next week we'll begin with verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1 to dive into some details. So this week we're going to hit this passage and hit some highlights here and there all the way through seven. Just kind of what I want to do is think of it this way, just kind of create a filing cabinet for you where you can start to file away the things that you learn and engage with over the next few weeks. So here we come to this long-awaited, for many of you, journey through the deep and murky waters of Revelation. Listen, when I was asked to do this passage by the elders, I was like, y'all are crazy. All right? Like, and it was like this, all right, so you're going to take a break for like seven months and then your re-entry is going to be Revelation, the book I've avoided for 10 years now. Sounds awesome. So just like my sabbatical, I wasn't too thrilled with that idea either. Some of you, though, are more excited about this book than I've seen you excited about anything else. I don't know what that says, but, but, but many of you are awaiting me, I think, to begin to pull out my charts and graphs. Anybody looking forward to that? They're, keep looking. <clears throat> or to show you how one political leader or social leader or the other corresponds to the Antichrist. Or maybe you can't wait for me to make some predictions about when the end is coming based on Revelation. <clears throat> However, some of you are like, yeah, whatever. It's Revelation and who knows what's going to happen. So, so why study it? It's, it is indeed murky. Why mess with it? On the other hand, some of you couldn't care less. It's just, it's just that confusing Bible or confusing book at the end of the Bible. Why indeed should we mess with it? But I also know that there are some who have said to me, I, I'm so excited to study the book of Revelation. I have never been taught, these are the words I'm quoting, I've never been taught how to understand this book in a healthy church setting. My, my prayer is that that's what happens, that, that you... Figure out how to engage this 
uh, very daunting or seemingly ambiguous book or challenging book in the context of a healthy church. That's not just about the preaching, but also about engaging it in community and learning to walk in repentance and faith according to the words that we see here. Revelation, to be honest with you, is an awesome book that, and one that I've grown to love just in the past couple months, uh, that, that I would have sat in many of the same shoes that I just described for you. Ah, you know, it's going to happen then. Who knows? We'll just, I, in many ways, I described myself and in many ways the, the journey of my own theological understanding of this passage. But Revelation is not some book to figure out some secret number code or only some understanding of future events. Revelation is a book for you to go and behold the glory of God as He is now and as He will always be. It's a book calling you and I to gaze upon the reality of God. To read Him as He is. To hear Him as He is. To know Him as He is. To trust Him and enjoy Him as He really is right now and will ever be. And then, compelled by the joy of beholding His glory for you and I to then walk obediently in light of this. It's not called the book or the revelation of future events. Although it does describe various aspects of that, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's read the first three verses. He says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray. Father, as we wade through these passages, Father, I pray that above all else, that we would see you and behold you as you really, truly are today. And that that would begin to define our reality. That it would shape and mold then how we think about life and how we act and respond. That it would begin to shape and change our affections and what we love and what we treasure and what we let go of for better things. Father, I ask all these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to use this word behold a lot, so I thought I should define it really quickly for you. What it means to behold, to see, observe, look upon, to gaze. And God has built that desire into His creation's heart. He has made us to to gaze, to, to want to grab a hold of, to, to, to be a longing creature, to hear and to behold and to, to stop for a moment. Now what we also know from the Scriptures and, and even from general revelation and such is that whatever it is, the longing and more deeply you behold something, the more that something begins to define reality. 
begins to shape and change what you think and your next steps and your response. For example, just anecdotally, as you behold a glorious sunset, think about the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. Generally, it inspires awe, right? It begins to shape you. It inspires awe. It settles, for some, it settles the soul. For me, like I begin to relax. The body begins to ready itself for a night of rest. It has an impact. You're beholding this thing begins to change and, and determine in some ways your next move or drive your next affection. And the reality is, is that we all behold things and those things drive us as they begin to define reality to us. Let me give you another example, like the virtual gamer stuck in a fake world who then goes and acts as if he is still or she is still in that world. What is it, my question today, is what is it that defines reality for you? What is it that you seek to behold moment after moment that is defining reality for you? To name a few examples, it could be Maybe what defines reality for you is social media. The blog, the meme, the Twitter thread. Is that what describes the way life really is in this moment? Maybe it's CNN or Fox News that defines reality for you. That drives the way you think about the world. Maybe it's that latest YouTube sensation. Maybe your perception is the end-all, be-all and what defines reality for you. Or maybe it's your emotions or your favorite commentators. But what would happen? What would happen to the church, to us, to the global church, to you as an individual, if we beheld the glory of God as it really is, and that began to define the way we viewed reality. That that was the chief overarching way in which we would assess life and respond to life. If we could in our mind's eye behold God's glory and how He truly is. If that began to drive how we view, how we respond to any and all of life's circumstances, both good and evil ones. I believe that that is John's aim here. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ as He really is at this very moment. And John intends for us to behold it and for it to then shape the way we live and walk today. He's telling us, first and foremost, behold the glory of God in the resurrected Christ. Behold the glory of God in the resurrected Christ. In chapter 1, verse 12 through 16, let me quickly read this for you. Then I turned, just John speaking, then I turned, see the picture, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw golden lamps, seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed, listen here, with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Listen to the spectacle, the captivating spectacle that John is describing here for us. His majesty, this long robe with a golden sash around his chest his holiness his hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow his power his eyes were like flame of fire and his voice like the roar of many waters his authority this sharp two-edged sword and his brilliance the sun shining in full strength listen to the picture that john is trying to describe for our minds eye our faith to behold listen what sight have you ever beheld that could match the sight that john is describing think with me for a moment when you look maybe not directly at but you sense and see and behold the brilliance of the sun on a full day with no clouds, or when you gaze upon the majesty of the ocean's waves, moment after moment, the wave crashing, or maybe when you ponder the power of pure white snow as it moves in avalanche form, or if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, right, and got on the boat, and got close. I don't know if you know this. I went and looked it up for this purpose. There are 500,000 gallons of water that fall every second. Every second. And the roar you hear as millions of pounds of weight and pressure hit second after second after second. After second. Now, imagine with me that you could stand in one place and see and sense all of the greatest beauties that you've ever beheld and take it all in at once and then realize under the weight of that incredible picture that you are only grasping but a fraction of the glory in which you stand. That's what's happening to John. That's what John is trying to use language to describe. The weight of the scene, the illustriousness, the grandeur of the scene moves John. Something happens to John in this moment. As John beheld the reality of the risen Christ as he is right now. Next it says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John beheld his glory and it compelled him to fall as though dead. Why? I think at very least because John knew that he was not worthy to stand in the presence of what he was seeing. He knew that just his creatureliness alone, let alone his sinfulness, was worthy of death in the presence of such glory. 
But then look what happens. <laughs> look at this picture. 17. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. Hear it? I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. And then the person, Jesus reaches out and touches John. Wow. Fear not. He says, for I have the keys to life and death. I am the living one. I died and I have defeated the very death you feel right now. He's telling John, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear this. John understood, I think, that it was death that he deserved. And Jesus is saying, I have the keys. He's saying, oh, John, don't fear the death you deserve, for I died that death. I defeated that death, and I have the keys to that death. And you, John, you are mine. You are mine. Oh, the weight of this. So we are changed by what we behold. It moves us. It, it, it's, this is the defining reality for us and, and to compel us. See, the glory of God compels obedience. The glory of God compels obedience. Say those who behold it rightly, of course, compels obedience. To compel, what do I mean? Like to drive irresistibly. Again, another example. Imagine you're standing before the Grand Canyon or some other incredible creational art piece. There you are before this place. What are you driven to do? What would you think you would do in that moment as you behold the grandeur of the Grand Canyon? For some, you're driven to sit and stare, right? And that's great. To sit and just go, oh, just to soak it in. Some of you are urged to get on a horse and maybe go ride. I look at it and say, I wonder if there's mountain biking trails. (laughs) Others want to take pictures so they can share it with others and enjoy it together. And some, because their appetites are consumed with the glory of self, shrug their shoulders, turn and walk away. All of these, of course, but one are great and good responses. You can see the compelling nature of beholding. Again, you see this with John. But then I want to continue walking us through like beyond just chapter one and moving into chapters two and three. And there's this striking contrast. You have this incredible glory of this risen Christ at the end of chapter 1, and then we turn to the letters to the seven churches. Listen, five of the seven churches are rebuked for some specific sin and called to repentance. Two of those seven churches that are not rebuked 
are opposed by the, what he calls the synagogue of Satan and are told that they will suffer greatly. That they're going to be oppressed, that they're going to be hurt, that there's going to be brokenness all around them. Five of the seven rebuked for sin, two of the seven are told that they're going to suffer. You hear things like this very quickly, chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Then in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. But I have, sorry, chapter four, or chapter two, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. He's not talking to the world here. He's talking to the church. Verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Listen, most of us probably don't have to think or look very far to feel discouraged about the state of the church in our day. Like Ephesus and Laodicea, we know that our love is often not what it was at first, or we know those who seem lukewarm. We don't have to look far for false teaching, idolatry, immorality, and spiritual death in churches. The letters tell the reality about the sinful, challenged, seemingly weak state of the church. And this is not just a future reality. This is a reality now. And it's not just a reality now. This was a reality even in the good old days. The churches of the 50s were the same. The church in the 1800s, the same. The church in England and Africa and Ireland, the same. The Middle Ages, the same. Indeed, the church in Corinth and Galatia, just after Jesus' death, the same. We don't have to look far. But look at the whole picture he describes here. Don't drive into the details without seeing this. In chapter 1... What's happening? Jesus is standing, right? John describes it in all His glory among seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands symbolize the seven churches. The reality is not ultimately defined by what you and I see on the horizontal, even historically. Indeed, Jesus here, according to John, is standing among the churches, holding the churches in His right hand. He's got them. He's standing among them. He's not standing off to the side just going, well, when they get their act together or, or man, when they get just the things right or they, they're good on these issues and, and, and forsake these issues and then, then I'll walk. No, he's standing among them in their brokenness, in their sinfulness and in their persecution. Jesus is among them. This should define our reality now. This tells us how things really are this very second. Jesus is standing among His churches. Again, the Scriptures govern how we think about the horizontal. Even the data we intake or the feelings we have about the experience. God's Word governs it all and tells us how to think about such things we see on this 
plane. Jesus is attending to the church's well-being, possessing all glory and power and authority. That's the picture. He's here in all of this might and glory. And here's the church. But Jesus is right in the middle. And he's doing that right now. And Jesus then watch the language here. Again, they're just flying high over this. Jesus addresses each church beginning with some aspect of his glory. Some aspect of what John is beholding. He drops that in right at the beginning of each seven churches. For example, chapter 2, verse 1, to Ephesus. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In chapter 2, verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Chapter 2, verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Wow. Listen, as the church beholds the glory of God in all its many facets, the church is moved toward obedience. Let me put some practical application here when God's people fall out of line with the culture but maintain their faith and continue to be a witness to the gospel God shows his captivating and compelling glory in his ability to preserve his people even these weak, sinful, persecuted people. These people testify that Jesus is their treasure, which condemns the treasures of the world as worthless. So let me ask you this question What are you beholding that's compelling? Your life. Is it the dream of a comfy life? Is it the grandeur of your influence? How about the greatness of being liked? Or is it the majesty of your own perfection? What are you striving to keep in front of your face and to enjoy and behold? It, whatever it is, will compel your life. As it defines what reality looks like. That's what reality should look like for me. Is that perfection or that power. It should look that way. i got to make that happen. But John is telling his readers, instead, behold the glory of the exalted Christ. Jesus is telling the seven churches, behold the glory of your exalted Christ. As we move forward, I, there are two primary aspects that I believe are kind of rise to the surface. Two kind of chief aspects of God's glory that I believe come to the surface in the book of Revelation. And that is God's justice and God's mercy. John wants us in this book to behold the glory of God in both justice and mercy. 
You see this picture, this theme all the way through, justice and mercy, two terms that have been hijacked by our culture. I mean, that's nothing new. That's what happens. That's what was happening in the Bible age. God has terms and words to describe aspects of his character. The world hijacks it and begins to describe it and use it for different purposes. We have to, as the church, stop letting the world define the reality of anything, let alone justice and mercy for the people of God. We have the Word of God that governs every aspect of life. We let the Word define reality for us and how we understand these things. We look to the book of Revelation. I want to, over the next few months, to see the reality of God's justice and His mercy. Now, just like there was a stark contrast between Jesus standing among the churches and then these churches being described in their sinfulness and their persecution. These lukewarm churches in chapters 2 and 3 and then again we have pictures of this exalted Christ in 4 and 5 once again. Read with me for example in chapter 4 verse 9 through 11. And whenever... The living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, listen to these words, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created listen again to the picture wow and when we hear passages like this this should begin to all right all right that's where jesus is he's standing he's among the churches he is in glory's worthy of all glory and honor and power it should change the way we think it should change the way we feel about everything that's happening in our lives right now Listen, the description, why this picture? Why is John doing this? The description of the radiant glory of God in chapters 4 and 5, I believe, is meant to put the spotlight on the beauty of God's holiness and the wretchedness of sin. It's meant to be a juxtaposition, if you will. It's meant to show contrast. It's meant to highlight the injustices of the world, even within the churches, and to highlight the necessity for God's holiness displayed in God's justice. It's, it's, see the pictures next to each other. See the contrast. You ever looked at like the color black? Like on the back of a stage, and you're like, wow, that's really dark. And then someone like wearing a blacker shirt, right? Walks up next to you and you're like, wow, I wasn't looking at black. I was looking at gray. Why? Because it shows a contrast. The holiness of God here in this picture is meant to show this contrast. There's this great, holy majesty that is worthy of worship. And worship is more, again, than just singing or words. It's holy living. Then coming out, so the, the coming out of this heavenly worship scene, in verses 4, or chapters 4 and 5, come all these weird and crazy things, right? The judgments of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. What is happening in all those 
passages. Again, for our series, we're going to stop in seven. But if you watch this roll out over the next chapters beyond where we stop, you see the justice of God. You see God's justice coming to bear on the sinfulness of creation of His people or of the people He created. For example, chapter 6, verse 7 through 8, when He opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. What is happening here? God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. God's justice is coming. Justice is being served. All the wrong, listen to me church, all the sin, all the wickedness is getting the justice that it deserves. All the evidence is perfectly known. The correct verdict has come down. The precise punishment is being administered in exact and infinite precision. His wrath is being unfolded like never seen before. And as each chapter unfolds, all the way through chapter 16, you see God's justice coming and coming and coming and coming. This is the reality of the glory of God in justice. Let me give you a couple applicational thoughts here we should be stunned we should be stunned at the horror of the wrath of god beholding his great glory to repay to evil people what is due it is meant to jolt us awake as we Walk in sin. Let me quote someone I read this week. When we feel the magnetic force of temptation, we need to visualize the inescapable judgment of God described in chapters 6 through 16. We need to pray that God will use the revelation of his wrath to bulldoze the wickedness that is wooing us. Meant to wake us up. Also, in application for those, all of us who should fight for justice. Listen, when we are tempted toward despair, toward unrighteous anger, toward impatience, lacking gentleness, let God's glory and justice calm our hearts and compel us toward faithful and holy responses. But again, just not miss this picture. It's not miss the, the big picture. It's not just God's justice. Although, like the fact that He would show mercy to someone is His choice and His prerogative. And so we have these pictures of God's justice, but right here in the midst, again and again and again, as you read through the book of Revelation, 
in the midst of God's judgment, in the midst of his great glory and justice, you see something so special. There is a people upon whom God has chosen to show mercy. A people in the midst of his great justice where he shows mercy time and time again. Revelation 7.10 says this, And crying out with a loud voice, these people are crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation from what? Saving from what? A saving from sin and God's judge, just wrath upon those who've committed this sin. So they're saying salvation from this wrath. From our sin that deserves this wrath. He has saved us from that. He has rescued us. But those who refuse to repent having failed to see the mercy of God folded into His judgment, they receive the just payment that is due for their sin. Listen, this is key. If you want to write down something, write this down. The outpouring of God's wrath is meant to condemn everything else that you trust as if it's God. The outpouring of God's wrath is meant to condemn anything else that you behold and give credit to as if it is God Himself. It's meant to condemn all the things you behold when you should be holding, should be beholding the exalted Jesus. Let me quote someone. He says, God's judgment is actually His kindness in disguise. God uses this judgment while we live to lead us to repentance and salvation. God judges us so that He can save us. God's judgment says all the things that you and I are beholden to, all of the creation that you worship, that you're compelled and driven by, is worth nothing compared to the glory of God. God's justice here serves to show that God is holy as he brings judgment upon all that is wicked. And God's justice serves to show that God is holy as he brings judgment upon his righteous son so that his people could have mercy. This lamb as though slain. What's, what's that? This lamb who was slain. This One who was perfectly just, who was perfectly righteous and holy. Slain. What's that slain mean, right? God's judgment. God's glory in justice. Listen, you and I deserve God's just wrath. We are the wicked ones too. That's part of the point of the seven churches. Is These are God's people and they have fallen. They still struggle. They deserve God's just wrath. We are the ones who behold things like wealth or power, affirmation, control, or even really good things like equality or care for the poor. But when these things compel us more than the exalted Jesus, 
We deserve God's justice in judgment. Why? Because we are saying that the picture of the Lamb who was slain, now risen in glory and might, and is holy, 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 the text says, is not worthy of worship like these other things are. I'd rather behold the glory I can make with my own hands. But John is pushing us, helping us, trying to guide us to those who behold this glorious scene, a perfect, spotless lamb who received the justice that they deserved and then given God's mercy instead. To them, it says this in Revelation 7, verse 14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You hear that? Those who deserved this same wrath described for chapters and chapters and chapters. They've been made white. White like the picture just described of Jesus, right? The one with the the white hair. The one with this white, pure and spotless resemblance. They're made white in His blood. Revelation says, I encourage you to go read if you haven't already, that this glorious picture to behold, that the climax of the glory will be this, a people made up of every tribe and tongue, all made pure through the blood of the Lamb, worshiping their Savior Jesus where He sits as the centerpiece of it all. Church, I pray, I pray that we, every time we go, moment by moment, mundane moment after next mundane moment, that we, by the Spirit and His grace, would be a people who seek to behold the glory of God. And as we work through Revelation, that we would begin to see it displayed in justice and mercy. And then as we see more clearly the reality of God and His church in the world as it is now, defined by Him and His character and His doings described in this book, that it would begin to change how we see the next conversation. That it would change where we hope in and, and why we despair. It would change our courage and make us strong and bold for the right things with hope not in our hands, but in His. And that by God's grace, we would, again, behold His glory in justice and mercy. Let me pray. Father, as we work through Revelation, Father, I pray that we would see this mighty, powerful, yet meek and humble, exalted Savior standing among His churches. Father, we don't have to be this mighty, strong, powerful church. Father, indeed, the picture has been quite the opposite. The church has generally been characterized as weak and distracted 
and sinful. And I believe it's so. It's such that way so that you would be glorified as the powerful and glorious one standing in the midst preserving your people. Father, I ask that you would help us to walk faithfully for you. Help us to behold your glory. That will then begin to trickle into and begin to define the way in which we live. Father, for your good and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.